0: Hello. I'd like to welcome all of you to the third conference in the 2016-2017 CCB MJHS Palliative Care in the Patient-Centered Medical Home Case Discussion Series. Our case today will be a 45-year-old woman with locally extensive cervical cancer, chronic pain, and a history of IV drug abuse. My name is Dr. Martin Grossman, and I have no financial disclosures to report. So Our patient today is a 45-year-old female who presents with a chief complaint of pelvic pain with vaginal bleeding on a visit to her primary care provider. The HPI and review systems include progressive pelvic pain with referred low back pain, bloody vaginal discharge, constipation, decreased appetite with indeterminate weight loss, anxiety about current condition, and generalized fatigue. She reports the bleeding is in the form of spotting, which she attributes to menopause, and she's using about two to three pads a day. Her pelvic pain is described as a 4 out of 10, and she's been using ibuprofen, 600 milligrams, every four hours around the clock. Constipation is reported with tenesmus, and she has three bowel movements a week. She has increased fatigue with activities of daily living and periods of anxiety since the onset of the symptoms, which is about three months. She's also tearful during the visit. Her past medical history includes a pap smear three years ago she was HPV positive and lost to follow-up. She was hospitalized for right up quadru- right extremity abscess treated with IV antibiotics in 1996 at age 25. And she had two C-sections both in, in 2003 and in 2006. Medication is, in addition to the ibuprofen, she's taking MOM, 30 cc's as needed for bowel movements. Social history, she's single. She has two children, ages 13 and 11. She lives with her children in Brooklyn. She works full time as an addictions counselor at an inpatient drug rehabilitation center. She denies any alcohol or drug use at present. Past social history includes early onset of sexual activity at the age of 15. She previously worked as a sex worker at ages 17 to 25 and past history of IV heroin use ages 18 to 25. She has family, friends, and faith community for support and currently has no healthcare proxy or advanced directives. Spiritual and family history includes she's Christian, she's a member of the Liberty Baptist Church, she reports deep faith, and with the support of her church she's been saved from her former life of prostitution and drug addiction. Her family history includes a mother who passed away from a homicide, father with hypertension, hepatitis C and IV drug abuse, grandmother with hypertension and diabetes, and she has no known siblings. On physical examination, her blood pressure is 96 over 60, pulse rate is 96, respiratory rate 22, saturation 96%, and her temperature is 99.2. Her weight is 110 pounds, and she notes a weight loss of 16 pounds in the past six months, or 12% of her total body weight. Her mental status, she's alert and oriented, she's anxious and tearful. Cardiac pulse rapid, regular S1, S2 present, no murmurs, rubs, or gallops. Lungs are clear without any appetitious sounds. Symmetrical breasts without masses, tenderness, or lymph ne- nodes are negative. Abdomen is soft, bilateral lower quadrant tenderness, she's non distended. Extremities is one plus edema, no pitting, and peripheral pulses are present. On a rectal examination, she had heart stool, and she's black, negative. Urine dip was within normal limits, and an HIV test was done, which was negative. So as far as the symptoms assessment is concerned, she has unexplained vaginal bleeding, pelvic pain scaled a 4 out of 10, lower back pain scaled 2 out of 10, constipation with tenesmus bowel wounds three times a week, and anxiety which is scored at a 6 on the ESS score. So in assessing her risk for opioid abuse given her past history, uh, she has a personal family history of drug use, um, but she's been absent for 20 years. Previous history of smoking, also absent for 20 years. Um, a review of the I-STOP program is done and she has no prescribed activity. Um, drug screen is pending, and her total assessment based on these questions is moderate for opioid abuse. Additional variables to consider specifically in this patient are the time absent from drug abuse, which is 20 years, family support, grandmother, cousin, and two children, support of her faith community from the Liberty Baptist Church, she's employed as an addictions counselor, and she's regularly attending her narcotics anonymous meetings. So how would you treat this patient's four out of ten pain? Would you, A, continue the ibuprofen, 600 milligrams every four hours around the clock? Would you discontinue the ibuprofen, order Celebrex, 200 milligrams twice a day? Uh, would you also order Tramadol, 50 milligrams every four hours as needed for pain greater than 4 to 10? Or Tramadol, 50 milligrams every six hours scheduled around the clock for pain? And the answer is B and C. Scheduled Celebrex and Tramadol as needed. And the rationale for that is her pain is described as 4 of 10, which is considered moderate, generally requiring an opioid and adjuvant medication. This particular patient we will already cautious about opioid use. The ibuprofen needs to be discontinued because of the vaginal bleeding, and Celebrex is substituted. Tramadol is a weak opioid to add to the patient's regimen as needed for breakthrough pain. A scheduled COX-2 inhibitor is preferable in the setting of the bleeding. And of course, a 48-hour follow-up is necessary for pain assessment, and this may be done by telephone. Additional medical interventions will be done, a referral to a gynecologist for an evaluation. uh, Constipation, recommending Colase 100 milligrams twice a day and Seneca 2 tablets twice a day, or an alternative would be Miralax 17 grams daily to avoid pill burden. Anxiety, she's going to be referred to the social worker for supportive counseling and healthcare proxy is discussed and she identified her cousin as a possibility for a healthcare proxy. A follow-up appointment is scheduled with the cousin present to discuss his role as the healthcare proxy and advance directives regarding medical treatment. The patient is unfortunately diagnosed with cervical cancer and it's adenosclamous cervical cancer stage 3a. She was referred to the gynecological oncologist for treatment and on receiving of the consultation is noted that given her state of Ill, uh, stage of illness, the five-year survival is deemed to be 35% with concurrent chemotherapy and radiation. Cisplatin and 5-FU are used for chemotherapy, and radiation will include external beam radiation and radiotherapy. At a six-week follow-up appointment, the patient returns and she reports that the, both the radiation and chemotherapy were poorly tolerated, and her pelvic pain is now seven out of 10. Her anxiety is addressed with supportive social work counseling. Her weight loss, unfortunately, has persisted, so now she's got one pound per week. Depression screening is positive, and she can be treated with metazapine, initiated 15 milligrams daily, and may be increased up to 45 milligrams daily, or Symbol to 20 milligrams twice a day for a maximum of 120 milligrams daily. A meeting with the patient and the cousin is done, and the cousin agrees to be the healthcare proxy, and of course, the uh, diagnosis of the patient is discussed, prognosis and advanced directives, and documents are signed. How would you treat this patient? 7 out of 10 pain at this juncture? Would you initiate MS-Contin 15 milligrams twice a day with MSIR 5 milligrams every 4 hours for breakthrough pain? Would you increase the tramadol 50 milligrams every 4 hours around the clock with the COX-2 inhibitor twice a day as needed? Would you add a duregesic patch 25 micrograms transdermally every 72 hours with the tramadol 25 milligrams used as PRN, or would you make no changes to the medication orders and refer the patient back to the oncologist?" The preferred answer is C, the duregesic patch 25 micrograms transdermally every 72 hours with tramadol 25 milligrams as needed for um, breakthrough pain and that's because of the patient's moderate risk of opioid abuse. Fentanyl is the drug of choice. Breakthrough morphine is avoided for risk of abuse, and the patient is closely monitored for pain medication effectiveness. It is important to note the oncologist is referring the patients back to the primary care doctor for pain management, given the complexities regarding the IV drug use history. Initiation of universal precautions. Which of the following precautions may also be initiated? Want a contractual agreement with the patient? A random check of, bio- check of biofluid, urine, and saliva, or saliva for a drug screen? Mandatory consultation with psychiatry or addiction medicine, or all of the above? And the answer is all of the above. It is beneficial to both the patient and the provider to structure treatment and monitoring to establish an appropriate level of adherence monitoring and assist the patients who are at moderate to high risk to avoid non-adherence. And the pain or assessment, of course, is done within 48 hours, and the patient has called the clinic four times with a complaint of uncontrolled pain. Upon the return call, the patient is crying, extremely upset, demanding increased dose of pain medication. Patient exhibits which phenomenon? A, addiction, B, drug intolerance, C, tolerance, or D, pseudo-addiction. And the correct answer is D, pseudo-addiction. Pseudoaddiction is a a phenomenon where pain is undertreated and not adequately managed by the current pain regimen. Some behaviors may include moaning to demonstrate pain, repeated requests prior to prescribed interval, and pain complaints that seem excessive given pain stimulus. Intervention and reassessment. Fentanyl patch was increased to 50 micrograms transdermally every 72 hours, and upon a 24-hour telephonic follow-up pain assessment, the patient reported the pelvic pain was two to three out of ten scale, and she was satisfied with the pain management. She's compliant with her current pain management of fentanyl, and the need for tramadol is now relegated to 25 milligrams at night. A three-month follow-up is made, and after three months of cancer treatment, the patient reports the patient the patient reports that her pain is zero out of ten, and fatigue unfortunately has increased. She reports I'm sleeping all the time and she expresses the wish to be taken off the fentanyl. The fentanyl is decreased to 25 micrograms transdermally every 72 hours for three days, and then it is discontinued, and her pelvic pain remains at zero. Depression is managed with the daily antidepressant. Her constipation is managed with the bowel regimen we discussed earlier, and the vaginal bleeding has resolved. One year later, she follows you up in the office, follows up in the office with you. She's been asymptomatic until about two weeks ago when she developed right upper quadrant pain and greater fatigue. Her oncologist ordered a CAT scan, an MRI and biopsy, which revealed liver metastasis. The patient was not considered a surgical candidate based on the tumor burden and impingement to the inferior vena cava. The oncologist reports that based on the results of the test, the management of cervical cancer patients with metastatic disease is currently now aimed at control of symptoms and pain. What type of palliative care interventions might be done For pain, the oncologist prescribed morphine sulfate extended-release 15 milligrams twice a day, morphine immediate-release five milligrams every three to four hours as needed for breakthrough pain, and of course the oncologist is signed off the primary physician for pain and symptom management. The patient requests assistance in assigning guardianship to her cousin to care for her children after her death, and she is appropriately referred to social services. One week later, the patient is admitted to the hospital for fever and alteration of mental status. She's found to have a urinary tract infection and high ammonia levels. She was treated with IV antibiotics and oral lactulose. Her symptoms stabilize after one week and she is sent home. The cousin agrees to be the caregiver. The primary care physician requests a family meeting prior to discharge to discuss healthcare decisions. Question, which of the following correctly identifies the role of the primary care physician and the patient in making health care decisions? One, the physician is the ultimate authority in making decisions about a patient's health. Two, the physician and the patient must establish together who makes decisions about the patient's health. Three, choice C, the physician has little direct influence on the patient's personal health choices. Or Four. Although it is the physician's responsibility to inform the patient about her condition, the physician must ultimately respect the patient's personal health choices. And of course, the answer is D. With regard to healthcare decisions, patients decide she wishes to go. She she decides that she wishes to go home with her family. She wishes to be comfortable without pain or symptoms. She does not want to return back to the hospital. She signed an out-of-hospital do-not-resuscitate order, and she wishes support for both herself and her children. At this point, hospice is entertained. And what are the hospice eligibility criteria for a cancer diagnosis? Multiple hospital or emergency department visits during the past six months, recurrent serious infections of or a urinary, or urinary tract or lungs, Disease-related weight loss of greater than or equal to 10% of in past six months, albumin less than 2.5, two or more pressure ulcers that have not healed, decreased functional status less than 40% on the palliative performance scale, metastatic disease, completion of disease-modifying treatment, and multiple comorbidities. 45-year-old cervical cancer patient with a history of IV drug abuse, abuse use. Is this patient eligible for hospice services based on the criteria we discussed on the previous slide? Yes or no? And the answer is yes. She is a candidate for hospice services. She has met seven out of the nine eligibility criteria. And a referral is made and the patient is admitted to the hospice program. She elects to keep her primary care provider as her physician and the primary care provider is called by hospice and that primary care provider agrees to continue being the primary physician. As is customary with all patients enrolled in hospice, a hospice medical director is assigned to assist in the management of symptoms. The patient confirms her prior goals of care as stated. The patient and family are educated on hospice services. And healthcare decisions. Most form is completed. Of course, most form stands for medical orders for life-sustaining treatment. During the following few weeks, the pain level increases, and the patient's re- pain regimen is titrated to MS Contin 45 milligrams every eight hours, with MSIR 15 milligrams every four hours for breakthrough pain. The hospice reports now the patient is now homebound with a functional status of less than 30%. Symptoms of depression and anxiety are well controlled, appetite remains poor and weight loss persists, and the family is distressed with regard to the patient's decline. A call for help. One night, the hospice medical director receives a call from the hospice nurse that the patient is complaining of 10 out of 10 pelvic pain. She is currently receiving MS-contin 45 milligrams every eight hours around the clock and has required five doses of MSIR 15 milligrams every four hours in the past 24 hours. What dose is ordered? The MS-contin is increased to 60 milligrams every 12 hours with MSIR at 15 milligrams every four hours as needed. The MS-contin is increased to 100 milligrams every 12 hours with MSIR 30 milligrams every 3 hours. Continue the current regimen because she has room for additional PRN doses each day. Or the fourth choice, MS Contin 45 milligrams every 8 hours with MSIR 30 milligrams every 4 hours as needed. And the correct choice is B. A calculation is made based on how many PRN doses the patient is receiving and that's how it is determined to increase the MS content to reflect the amount of as-needed medication the patient had received in the past 24 hours. Of course, a reassessment is done within 48 hours, and the patient's pain level is now described as two out of 10 without the need of rescue doses. Confusion is minimal uh, with latulose that was added since her hospital stay. The bowel regimen is effective in preventing constipation with the latulose. Anxiety and depression are controlled, and the patient's quality of life is improved. Two weeks later, a call is received from the hospice nurse that the patient is unresponsive, unable to swallow medication. She's exhibiting a pain of nine out of 10 based on the FLAC score, which is her determination based on face, legs, activity, crying, consolability. The family is distressed, by witnessing the patient's pain, and they are unable to manage the patient at home due to uncontrolled pain and restlessness. One of the wonderful advantages to hospice is generally a patient like this would be sent to the hospital. Unfortunately, sometimes hospitals are not the best place for patients in this type of situation. And part of the hospice program involves the transfer to an inpatient hospice facility. An ambulance is called by the hospice team and the patient is transferred from her home to a hospice inpatient facility, and that transfer is done from her bed at home to a bed in the inpatient facility without going through an emergency room. And the reason why this patient is being transferred to an inpatient hospice facility is first because of escalating symptoms of pain and restlessness, there's a lack of oral route for administration of medical management of symptoms, there's family distress, and an inability to manage the patient at home. The primary responsibility of hospice is to ensure that the patient is as symptom-free as possible and hospice will be as aggressive as necessary to achieve that goal. The hospice medical director contacts the primary care provider and informs him or her of the transfer to hospice inpatient unit. The primary care provider remains a valuable member of the team. What type of pain medications would one use for an unresponsive patient? In this particular patient, what would you prescribe? A fentanyl patch, sublingual morphine, intravenous morphine, or the patient does not require opioids if she is unresponsive? The correct choice is C, IV morphine. It is a very unfortunately common mistake that when patients are not responsive, we assume that they're comfortable. In this particular patient, she was exhibiting signs of discomfort based on the FLAC score, despite the fact that she was unresponsive. What dose of morphine would you give this patient? The patient received morphine of 360 milligrams orally in the past 24 hours. When we've combined the oral dose of medication, the extended release, in addition to the as needed doses the patient might have received before she lost her oral route. What dose of morphine sulfate IV will be prescribed for this patient? A morphine continuous infusion of 15 milligrams an hour intravenously, a morphine continuous infusion of five milligrams per hour intravenously, a morphine continuous infusion of one milligram per hour intravenously, or a morphine continuous infusion of three milligrams per hour intravenously. And the answer is B. There's a three to one ratio between oral to IV morphine. So anytime one is converting from oral medication to IV medication, that number needs to be divided by three. And assuming we're not changing the opioid, that's an exact amount. So the 360 is divided by three, and then divided by 24 to figure out what the continuous infusion will be on an hourly basis and the correct answer is five milligrams per hour. Now we have to also order a rescue dose for this patient. On arrival to the hospice inpatient unit, the FLAT score for the pain is nine out of 10. A rescue dose is ordered, morphine sulfate, 10 milligrams, IV push, every 15 minutes times three as needed for breakthrough pain. And that's because morphine, peak onset of action, is between 10 and 15 minutes. And if a dose of morphine is given intravenously and after 15 minutes it has not been effective, it will never be effective, and the dose has to be repeated. The patient receives once that dose of morphine sulfate on arrival in the inpatient hospice unit once IV is achieved, and she requires a total of two doses, and her flat score is now two out of 10. She's more awake, and she appears to be comfortable. Family distress resolves once the patient's comfort is achieved. For hospice inpatient stay, a family meeting is held the following day with the healthcare proxy and the hospice team to discuss the goals of care. The primary care physician is included by telephone for the results of this meeting. The healthcare proxy declines IV hydration based on the patient's previously stated goals and wishes and request comfort measures only. The hospice team reaches out to the patient's church. A visit is made by her minister for prayer and support. Over the following week, pain meds are titrated over the next several days based on frequent evaluations by hospice MD and nursing staff. The patient develops respiratory secretions, which is a common symptom in patients in the last couple of days of life on day number seven, and glycopyrrolate is administered intravenously with good effect in reducing secretions. The hospice medical director informs the family that the patient is transitioning and advises them of signs and symptoms of approaching death. The family keeps a vigil throughout the night, and the patient expires peacefully at 4 a.m., surrounded by family members, church members, and hospice staff. In conclusion, as far as the patient outcome is concerned, unfortunately many patients who are at the end stages of various illnesses, death is an inevitable outcome. But what her goal was is to experience a comfortable and peaceful death surrounded by her loving family and devoted church members in respect of her values and her goals of care. And that was achieved in this patient. Family outcomes and interventions. It's not just the patient that is suffering in these types of scenarios. The family is also suffering. Once the patient's suffering can be mitigated by medications, the responsibility then is to turn to the family and see what can be done to help them with their suffering. And the most important thing for families is a perception that the death was peaceful and comfortable, which was achieved in this case. The family was satisfied with the hospice care provided, and the patient's children and other family members will be provided bereavement support for 13 months as is done as part of the hospice program. These are the references for the information presented. If anyone has any questions, please uh, forward some questions. Okay, we have a question. I may read it. What response do patients have to request for opiate agreement or random drug screening in an attempt to establish universal precautions. Well, like anything else, it sometimes depends on how it's presented. In our particular patient here, she was successful in overcoming one of the greatest burdens of her life, a previous addiction and other various behaviors. The approach should be one of a contract between, an agreement between a provider and a patient because between a doctor and a patient, it's a relationship and the patient has to feel that the provider cares and the provider has to feel that the patient is properly achieving the goals that they set together. So as long as it's presented in a proper way, this patient here would not have an objection to having that type of discussion. We have another question here. What are the clinical takeaways from the talk? The most important thing is the relationship of patient and primary care physician have with each other. This case demonstrates how important that primary care physician was to this patient's care in the fact that when she had to go on hospice, she elected to follow have a primary care physician follow. In fact, the primary care physician agreed to follow based on that relationship. And hospice is never about taking and disturbing that relationship between a primary care provider and the patient. The other clinical thing to remember is that despite this patient's previous opioid use, opioid medications are necessary in patients when they have advanced symptoms of either cancer or other illness or other illness or other illnesses. And to restrict a patient's dosing based on a fear of opioid use or abuse in a patient that's coming to the end of life is not a good way to practice medicine. That's all the questions that we have. I want to thank you for your time in this webinar. Um, and I want to remind everyone that uh, we have a next webinar, Indications and in Use of Medical Cannabis, by Dr. Bernard Lee, Associate Chief Medical Officer for MJHS Hospice and Palliative Care, Wednesday, October 26th at tw- uh, 2016, at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Please complete your evaluations to help us in planning our future sessions.